Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this breeze. That even though it's, it's going to be a hot one today, it's the summer, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, we thank you for the breeze. I thank you for the shade that we do have on this property, uh, that we can sit in it and, and, and enjoy uh, singing praises to you uh, and, and sitting in our cars singing praises to you and hearing from you, hearing from your word. So Lord, I, I thank you that we can have church anywhere as long as two or three are gathered in your name. Uh, you are here in our midst. And so Lord, we, we gather together as brothers and sisters, as your children, as a church family, uh, pour out our praise, pour out our worship, uh, and give you all the glory for it. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In, uh, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, after, uh, immediately after Jesus is tempted uh, by Satan himself in the, in the wilderness, uh, he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, and uh, he's, they have church, they have synagogue, uh, the way they, they do every uh, Saturday, every Sabbath. And uh, Jesus stands up and he takes the, the scroll of Isaiah, as we often do, we have a scripture reading. Uh, and he reads out of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Anybody else who usually did that, just read scripture, they read it, they rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the synagogue attendant, and sat down. That's all they did. They shut up and they sat down. Jesus keeps on going. He, he reads the scripture from Isaiah and he closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, sits down. Everybody's looking at him. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that created such an uproar because everybody knew exactly what he was getting at. Everybody knew that he was referring to himself as the, as the Messiah and as God. And that created such an uproar that, that Jesus couldn't really return there again. Uh, he said, a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown. Uh, too many people know me here. Uh, they, they knew that I grew up here and they just can't get past that fact. That they saw me as a kid. They saw me growing up. They cannot get... Uh, can't get past that fact that I'm that I'm still even though I, I was a kid and I grew up here I'm still the Messiah. I'm still their king. I'm still their God uh, and, and so as we open up our time, please take out your your psalm sheet out of your uh, Bulletin the first song we're gonna be singing today is a, a song that we've sang sung often and it's called our God and in it it says uh, that Jesus turned water into wine, but he, he also opened the eyes of the blind. It's one thing to perform a miracle, turning water into wine. That's, whoa, how did he do that? But taking somebody who's been personally affected by blindness for either their whole life or for a very long time and completely changing the world by giving them their sight back, that is huge. That is huge not only for anybody who's watching, but that's huge for each of those people personally. They have been personally touched by Jesus, personally changed, personally transformed by Jesus himself. And I think every single one of us here can agree to that, that each of us have been personally touched, personally changed, personally transformed by Jesus. And so our blindness might have been spiritual blindness as opposed to physical blindness, but it was blindness, blindness nonetheless, and Jesus opened our eyes. Jesus gave us the keys 
uh, to heaven uh, by opening up the door to, to Almighty God for us. When, we, when he opened our eyes through the Holy Spirit and said, look, I died for you. I love you so much. I want you to have forgiveness of your sins. I want you to be uh, restored by my Father and adopted by him into his family. Come, join our family. All of us can declare, you have opened the eyes of the blind. You have opened my eyes. And I will always worship you for that, Lord God. Turned into wine, open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you, none like you. Into the darkness you shine, out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you, none like you. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome and power. Our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? What could stand against? Our God is great. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? What could stand against? 
later Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer Awesome in power Our God Our God As you all know, we've been covering uh, a lot of Jesus' parables, uh, focusing on the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the parables, which we haven't covered yet, is the parable of the lost sheep. And the shepherd leaves the other 99 to go after that one sheep. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. A lot of us can look back on our lives and say, boy, God never left me. God never gave up on me. He continued to follow me. He continued to be with me. And when the time was right, he reached out one more time to me, and I finally took a hold of that hand. And when we, when we think of God's love, it is unexplainable. It doesn't make sense to us as humans, because we have a limit, right? <laughs> when, when Peter asked Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody else? And he said, 70 times 7. Peter his mouth dropped open. And we want to do the math and say, okay, so how many times is that exactly? 490. <laughs> but Jesus' point was you got to just keep forgiving people. You just got to keep loving them. That doesn't make sense to us. That rubs us the wrong way sometimes as humans. But thank God he is not like us. Thank God his love is infinite. And it doesn't make sense to us. And in human terms, it can be reckless. It looks like it's reckless, but in God's mind, it is perfect. For I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You've been so, so good to me. For I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the night behind. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending Reckless love of God So, so kind to me. Oh, the 
overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Glory chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Glory overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Jesus reaching out to us and us taking a hold of him, taking a hold of his love, taking a hold of his forgiveness. All of us were once dead, dead in our sins. We had no hope. All we had to look forward to, if you could call it that, was what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's all we had to look forward to. We were like the man Lazarus who got sick and died and was laid in the tomb, and that was it. Until Jesus showed up. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he walked out. That's unbelievable. That is unheard of. That is truly miraculous. And when Jesus reached out to each and every one of us and said, come forth, come forth out of your darkness, and your depression, and your fear, and your anxiety, and your sin. Come forth out of all of that and come to me. 
And we walked out of that tomb. We truly walked into a glorious day. property that we have that we can have a service such as like as such as this we thank you for the breeze that's blowing thank you for the sun that's shining 
Thank you that we can be together, even if it's just in this way. But Lord, you are in control. You have a perfect plan. I pray that you continue to be with those in our church family who have suffered tremendous loss, who have suffered the loss of loved ones, suffered the loss of, of income, suffered the loss of stability. Lord, we know that you are near to the brokenhearted. Lord, we thank you for that, that truth and that peace and that promise. Lord, I pray that you would be with us right now. We know you are. That your spirit would go forth, that these words would not just be words that stick in our minds, but they would work, work their way down into our hearts and, and change our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten years ago, millionaire, millionaire and, and art and antiques collector, that's a mouthful, huh? Millionaire and art and antiques collector, a man named Forrest Fenn, hid a treasure chest containing $2 million in riches in the Rocky Mountains. He included clues to its location in a 24-line poem in his 2010 autobiography and encouraged adventurers to go out and find it. Over the past decade, about 350,000 people went hunting for this modern-day treasure chest, and five people died in the pursuit. Finally, over the first weekend of this month of June 2020, while we had our first drive-in service here at our, at our ministry center, the treasure chest was found. In a Washington Post article published that following Monday, Fenn revealed that a person who wished to remain anonymous had found the chest and sent him photographic evidence that it had been found. We're going to be looking at another of Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 this morning and looking at an important biblical truth connected to it. You'll see what I'm talking about in a second. Again, today, we're only covering uh, a few verses, but like all the other parables before this, there is a ton of truth packed into this little story or image. As we've seen, these parables that Jesus has been talking about have, have not been haphazard or random. They've all been about what? They've all been about the kingdom of God. What about the kingdom of God, specifically? In a very real way, the kingdom of God was initiated by Jesus the first time he came to earth and continues through this current church age. Specifically, these parables have been about the coming and future kingdom of, that, that, that Jesus will establish on earth following his overwhelming victory at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, one other question about all these parables. Had any of this information been previously known by the Jewish people who were listening to Jesus? No, not at all. In fact, for all of these parables that we've been covering the past few weeks, this was all completely new to even the most learned Jewish scholars. None of this information could be found in the Old Testament scriptures, and so is perfectly unknown to anyone but Jesus at this point. And that's what Matthew's point is in Matthew 13, 34 through 35. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to that, Matthew 13, 
34 through 35. If you didn't, you, should, you probably brought a smartphone with you. Go to your preferred app store. Look for uh, the Bible app by life.church. It's completely free, and you can look this up as well so we can all see this together. Matthew 13, 34 through 35. And we read, All of these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. When you first read this, you would expect Matthew is referring to one of the big prophetic names, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or like last week Ezekiel or Daniel, one of these big prophet names. But this reference is, first of all, to a psalm. Psalm 78.2. And if you go back and look that up, you'll find out that this psalm isn't even written by David. It's written by someone else. Psalm 78 is actually a very interesting psalm written by a very interesting author for a very interesting purpose and actually fits this connection to Jesus perfectly. If you go back and read this psalm, it's written by a man named Asaph. Asaph. Anyone here heard of Asaph before, other than seeing his name at the top of some psalms and wondering, I don't know who that guy is, but I'm, I'm going to read this psalm anyway. This, this, got, this psalm, again, like all those other ones, was written by a man named Asaph. According to one biblical scholar, Asaph was a poet and a prophet under the kingships of both David and Solomon. The whole purpose of him writing what would be labeled Psalm 78 was to teach his generation and future generations a very important truth. If you go back and read over that psalm, you'll discover that the entire point of that psalm was to point out to the nation of Israel that God remained steadfastly faithful to them, even though they continually rebelled against him. It recounts the time from the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through till David's time. But what's very interesting about what's right at the beginning of this psalm are the words that are referenced by Matthew here that we just read over. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. According to one biblical scholar, what will follow throughout the rest of this psalm is insight that the prophet Asaph gleaned from past historical events that had previously been unrevealed to the people of Israel. But Jesus, speaking in parables according to Matthew, Jesus is not only fulfilling Old Testament scripture yet again, but doing something very profound as well. In connection with Asaph, what Jesus is doing with these parables, indeed the very purpose of these parables, is to reveal previously unknown truth of the coming kingdom to the world. And that's what we just talked about. No one knew any of this before the giving of these parables. This knowledge lay hidden, and no one even knew it existed except for God, since before the foundations of the world were laid, like a buried treasure chest from our opening story. And now Jesus is opening up that treasure chest of God's wisdom and revealing truths about the coming kingdom that had never before 
been heard by, by any human ears up to that point. And even though the people listening to Jesus didn't really get it or understand it, much less apply it to their lives, we as followers of the truth revealer, Jesus Christ, have the blessing of partaking in this priceless and astronomically valuable treasure. Let's not take it for granted. But like those 350,000 people who risked everything in their very lives to find that earthly treasure that can disintegrate into dust, let's dig into these parables for all the eternal value that they have and that they are. So with all that established, let's move up to the parable we'll dig into today. This morning's parable is only one verse, one verse, but we'll see how much treasure there is just under the surface of it. So let's read verse 33. We read, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. I told you, one verse. That's all we're going to cover today, but there's so much packed into this. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is described like leaven worked into three pecks of flour. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Let's start with the leaven. What in the world is leaven? Well, it's dough that already has active yeast in it. The leaven, or activated yeast dough, is what makes bread rise and be fluffy. That's why unleavened bread is usually flat. Let's move on to the flour now. What in the world is a peck? Anybody here know? Anybody, the last time they baked a cake, they used pecks of flour for anything? We're gonna, we're gonna see what that kind of translates into today. Could you imagine walking in a shop right and asking the guy at the deli counter for a peck of ham or turkey and wondering what his, uh, his facial response would be. So how much is three pecks? This was obviously a standard of measurement in Palestine during Jesus' time. One peck is equal to about 3.6 U.S. gallons. So multiply that by three, and the amount of dough Jesus is describing here is close to 11 gallons of dough. That's a lot of dough, isn't it? That's a lot of dough to be kneading by hand in one sitting by one person. I don't think anybody here wants to knead that much dough in one day. Your forearms would be on fire, wouldn't they? That would be the best workout you had in a long time. I know I can't really see too much through your windshields here. I know a lot of you aren't actually even sitting in your cars. You got out and sat over here. But I'm assuming no one's hand is going up that anybody wants to knead that much flour in one sitting. In fact, as one biblical scholar pointed out, that was the limit. That was the, high, the, the upper limit. That was the limit uh, for, for how much dough a woman could knead in one day. That was a day's worth of kneading. Now, how much bread would 11 gallons of dough make? Enough to feed 100 to 150 people. That's a lot of bread, isn't it? To feed 100 to 150 people for a day. Now, how people would make bread back in those days is very similar to how sourdough bread continues to be made today. You would have a lump of leavened dough that you would take a piece off of that, you'd rip a piece off of that, and you'd work into a fresh batch of dough. 
That's why during Passover and the immediately following Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament, one of the main things the Jewish people were supposed to do was to get rid of that original lump of leavened dough that you take pieces from to leaven other batches of dough because that leavened dough represented sin. Getting rid of that symbolized you were removing the sin from your life and starting over. Just like the parable we discussed last week, this parable does not have a direct interpretation by Jesus. You see that. He doesn't give this parable and then sit down with his disciples and say, this is what I meant by that. He gives the parable and that's it. But again, uh, there, there's a couple of different theories of interpretation from this. We're gonna take a look at a couple of them. With one making the most sense in the context of what else Jesus has been talking about. The first interpretation takes this connection we just discussed about the leaven representing sin and evil. In this interpretation then, this parable would mean that, similar to the parable about the wheat and the tares, there would be evil that would be allowed to remain until the harvest, when everyone would be held accountable for their earthly lives. Those whose name was not found in the Lamb's Book of Life would then be thrown into the fire. So the leaven, representing, representing sin and evil, would generally be a part of this waiting period until the time of the judgment. However, Jesus had already revealed that piece of knowledge, that piece of hidden knowledge, in that parable we already talked about, about the wheat and the tares. Why would he see the need to reveal that previously hidden truth again in another parable? Likewise, leaven in the Bible does not always symbolize sin and evil. In fact, in Leviticus 7 and 23, there are descriptions of a couple of offerings the Jewish people were to make to the Lord, both as offerings of thanksgiving to God for his provision. And those offerings included bread specifically made with leaven. And those were offerings to be made in thanksgiving to God. The leaven, then, in those offerings and cases would hardly represent evil. And if you connect this with the previous parable about the mustard seed that we talked about last week, you get an interpretation that makes more sense. Similar to the parable of the mustard seed, but not the exact same point, like the wheat and the tares, this parable represents a scenario in that there is a small beginning but the impact gradually becomes global. It gradually impacts the entire thing. In the parable of the mustard seed, the seed was the kingdom of God planted during Jesus' first visit to earth, sprouting on the day of Pentecost, on the, uh, or the first day of the church's existence, gradually growing bigger and bigger during this waiting period of the church age, and will come to full maturation when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. The subject of that parable, the parable of the mustard seed and the mustard tree, which we covered last week, was the kingdom itself. That was the subject of that parable. In this morning's parable, the subject of this parable is the vehicle of that kingdom. Hang on with me. You'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Last week's parable was the kingdom itself. This week's parable is the vehicle that would drive that kingdom. 
In a very primitive way of understanding this better, we can compare the kingdom to an individual person. Of course, a person can get from one point to another by walking. You could walk from one end of the uh, uh, from one end of this property to the other by walking. You could walk from here to the church. You could get from here to the church by walking. But what is a much more effective way of getting from point A to point B? By way of a what? A vehicle, right? A car, a plane, a boat, etc. Here's what I mean. Lots of people wonder. Why didn't Jesus plan on coming to earth now? Why did he wait another 2,000 years? Why didn't he plan on coming to earth now? He would have had access to television and radio and the internet and Netflix and Hulu and YouTube and anything under the sun to get his message across. To reach as many people as possible. But that's not the way God wanted it to work. Jesus could have come and done all the work himself and broadcasted himself in thousands of different languages across hundreds of different types of media and devices across the entire world. But like a person walking themselves from one place to another, ultimately God knew that would not be as effective as having a different vehicle to take Jesus' message of salvation to individual people. First of all, Jesus would just be white noise at this point, wouldn't he? There's so many people, talking heads, giving their opinion about every subject under the sun. Jesus would just be white noise broadcasting something at this point. And no one would have any reason to trust anything that he said, just like how we don't really trust anything anyone says in the media today. Why would this other guy be any different? So what was that much more effective vehicle that God planned out? The church. That's the much more effective vehicle that God planned out. All of us, the church, the universal church. People taking the message of Jesus in love and authenticity to other people doing it the way that Jesus did it, individually, person by person. Then that person sharing that with someone else, and so on and so forth. The church is what the leaven best represents here. The leaven represents the church. The dough is the world. It all starts out as a tiny piece of leaven, worked and kneaded into almost 11 gallons of dough. It's not immediate. It doesn't happen as soon as you plop that piece of leaven in there. You gotta, you gotta work at it. It's gradual, but it's effective. It's the most effective. By the end, that tiny piece of leaven has been worked into the entire batch of dough, and guess what? The entire dough has been infected, has been affected by that leaven. Not one part of that dough, then, is unaffected. So what Jesus is revealing here about the kingdom is that it would be taken to the ends of the earth by his followers, the church. It starts out with 120 of his followers gathered in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, but then multiplies just within a couple of hours to over 3,000 people. Before that even happened, 
Jesus told his disciples, take my message of hope, salvation from sin, and restoration to God to the very ends of the earth. Start in your hometown of Jerusalem, then move on to the surrounding area of Judea, then to the half-Jewish people of Samaria, and then to all the Gentiles in all the remotest corners of the world. And that's exactly what happened. We read in the book of Acts that God used widespread and awful persecution to scatter the church from Jerusalem and take the words of Jesus with them to all the surrounding areas. And from there, and over the past 2,000 years, it went out even further. Very often, that's the point of horrible persecution and trials, to provide new and more opportunities to share Jesus with people who wouldn't otherwise hear it. God used the firmly established Roman Empire to take his gospel message to the farthest corners of the empire. All those roads and sea routes that the Romans had created for trade and military reasons were fully taken advantage of to bear the good news of Jesus to that ancient world. And if you look back at world history from that point forward, the world was completely changed from that point forward. Sure, the church has had some dark periods and has done horrible things in Jesus' name. But when you think of Western ideals and values, those were completely transformed by the writings of Paul in the New Testament into what we have today. The ideals and values of Greece and Rome were completely different. If those continued the way they did, we would still have quite barbaric and pagan values in the Western world. And that's taken from an agnostic scholar who doesn't really, who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but he recognizes the, the, the worldwide impact Christianity has had on the world. It completely transformed the world as anybody knew it. For instance, Paul's writings, given by way of the Holy Spirit, turned the, how the world saw different humans completely upside down. The Bible is the only foundation for the world that gives every single human being, no matter the background, gender, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or race, eternal value in his eyes. No other belief system offered that when Paul was writing. This was completely radical. It completely changed the entire world. It changed the way the whole Western world would see humanity. In fact, according to the con a conservative biblical view, the gauge for when God tells Jesus, all right, son, it's time to go get your church. The entire gauge for when God the Father turns to his son and says it's time is when the last person from the last tribe, the last nation, or the last tongue to be included in heaven, and we know from Revelation that that's everything, that's everyone. Every tribe, nation, or tongue will be represented in heaven. When that very last person from that very last tribe, very last nation, very last tongue hears the gospel and asks Jesus for forgiveness of their sin, then boom! immediately Jesus will come back. Now that gives a whole ton of credence to becoming a missionary and supporting missionary work, doesn't it? This is based on 2 Peter 
which says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In the context of God initiating Jesus' return, which that verse is found smack dab in the middle of it, it makes sense that Peter's referring to any of God's chosen to perish. He doesn't want any, God doesn't want any of his chosen to perish, but for all of the chosen to come to repentance. As soon as that last chosen one before, uh, before Jesus comes back repents, there is absolutely nothing holding back Jesus' return. That last chosen one could live in a tribe that hasn't even been discovered yet, or guess what? It could be your next door neighbor. We have no clue. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But ironically, but not so ironically, the only way to speed up his return is to go share his gospel message with people you know. I can't think of any better motivation for that. Can you? As soon as the last one God has chosen to be raptured repents, Jesus will call us up to meet him in the clouds. So, brothers and sisters, the vehicle for God's message to the world, the church, what's our excuse? What's our excuse now? If we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly, what are we doing to speed that up? As soon as the world is fully leavened, both through missionary work and through individual conversations with family members and co-workers and neighbors, and after the, la the one last bit of extended grace through the future Great Tribulation, Jesus will set up his full and complete and whole earthly kingdom. If we want Jesus to come back and get us, and if we want Jesus to set up his earthly kingdom, we need to do our part to be the leaven, to leaven that whole batch of dough, to leaven the entire world. Are we helping to leaven the world? Or are we letting others work even harder to do it? Are we hastening Jesus' return or pushing it further and further back, kicking the can further and further down the road because we just don't want to do it? Are we helping to lead others into Christ's kingdom with the way that we live our lives and what we're telling them? Or are we driving them away by the way we live our lives and what we're telling them? Or rather, not telling them. This is a motivating message. This parable, the one verse parable about leaven being worked into a whole batch of dough, this is a motivating message. Jesus created his church to be the leaven. We're all in that parable right there. He created his church to be the vehicle for his message. He entrusted us with his treasure of a message. Let us hasten our Savior's return for us by being that active yeast. Let us hasten our Savior's return for us by getting out and sharing his message with one more person. We have no idea who that last person is, who that last person will be. The next one, that next one that you share the gospel message with could be the last one before Jesus comes back. And we'll all, we'll all say thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing the gospel message with that last person.
Lastly, by extension of this parable, let us allow our faith in Jesus and the teaching of God's word permeate every area of our lives. Just like how leaven completely transforms a batch of dough. Let us not hold anything back, but surrender every corner and area of our lives to the Holy Spirit's transformation. Only then will we have full peace in our lives. Only then will we have God's full blessing on our lives. Only then will we have full clarity as to what we should do in and with our lives. If our lives are fully leavened by the word of God, then we can be the most effective in leavening this world. So as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 12, 1 through 2, let us also answer this call with our lives. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't do things the way this world does them. Don't think about things the way this world does. But be transformed. Rise above that. Do things the way that God wants you to do them. Think about things the way that God wants you to think about them. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this one-verse parable, but everything that is wrapped up in that. We thank you for all the truth that is buried in it. Not like that treasure chest, we just had to dig a little bit for it and unearth it a little bit. But Lord, I pray that this would be motivating to us, that we would not leave this place unchanged, but that we would think, hey, I could share the gospel with one more person. That could be the last person before Jesus comes back and gets all of us. Lord, let, let that be our motivation and our inspiration and our passion. Not only that to, to hasten your return, but to see one more soul be added to God's kingdom and to bring another person with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take out your song sheets once again for our closing song. When we, when we close with this very well-known hymn, the way that God created his message to get out to the world is profound. It's not by broadcasting, although it, it can be, but he created it primarily to be shared person to person. That is the most effective way of doing it, in love and authenticity, the way that Jesus did it sharing that with one more person. But well, that's just a taste of who Jesus is and who God is and what his plan is and all that's entailed in that plan. So as we cl cl close with our, sing our closing hymn, let us pour out our adoration and our awe and marvel at how great our God is. Yeah.
Let's do our part to leaven this world and speed that up. Go in peace. Amen.